welcome to Tea and Tattle, a podcast featuring inspiring conversations with creative women around the world. I'm your host, Miranda Mills, and this week I'm joined by the author Laura Shepherd Robinson to discuss Laura's debut novel, Blood and Sugar. Set in Deptford in 1781, Blood and Sugar is a murder mystery that explores the horrific history of Britain's slave trade. The protagonist, Captain Harry Corsham, is a war hero with an ambitious wife who is eager he pursue a career within politics. Harry's plans go awry, however, when he discovers the tortured corpse of his university friend, Tad Archer, in Deptford. A passionate abolitionist, Tad has been campaigning for the end of slavery and his murder forces Harry to set himself against some of the country's most powerful politicians in his efforts to uncover the truth behind Tad's death and expose the terrible crimes against humanity committed by Britain's slave traders. In my chat with Laura today, she tells me about how she went from a career in politics to writing a novel, the research behind Blood and Sugar, and her plans for her next book. Let's get started with the show. Hello, Laura. Thanks so much for being on Tea and Tattle today. Hi, Miranda. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been so looking forward to chatting with you today because I absolutely loved your debut novel, Blood and Sugar, and I'm sure Tea and Tattle listeners will enjoy hearing about it as well. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I was really interested when I was reading a little bit about you. I learned that you actually built a career in politics before switching to writing. And I wondered if you could tell me a bit about that transition. What did your life look like before you started writing? And why did you make that switch? Um, It was very busy and very, very focused. And I think a lot of people who in the first part of their life pursue a career that's very focused and at quite a relentless pace have a point in their lives where often around the sort of 40 mark where they think about actually doing something different um Mm. I think it's hard to sustain that level of pace and intensity throughout a whole career I've got quite a lot of my friends who I worked with in politics um are now doing other things and I'd reached a point where there was quite a nice natural break and I decided to try my hand at something I loved and I'd always done quite a lot of writing in my old job often you know writing speeches and articles and things like that and I'd always really enjoyed that side of things and I've always loved novels and so I thought I'd see if I could write one. Oh well that's brilliant and so was Blood and Sugar the first book that you started writing or did you pursue other creative writing projects first so like everyone I pretty much every writer I know I have a couple of discarded novels in a drawer but ones which were never finished I think the less said about them the better um I I went and did I actually did an MA in creative writing where I wrote the first draft of Blood and Sugar and I then completely rewrote the book over the course of another year so it kind of feels like it's a second novel even though it's my first because it's so different to the first draft 
Oh, wow, that's so interesting. What made you rewrite it so much? Was it just that the first draft you were just really only feeling your way as a writer? Yeah, I think so, exactly. And I've, all of the central themes and characters were there, but the plot needed a lot of work. And so that was really what the, the second draft was about. Well, it's such a tightly plotted novel. I mean, that was something I really enjoyed about it is that the plot is brilliant and it really keeps you turning the pages because it's this wonderful blend of mystery as well as historical fiction. Are those two genres that you like a lot yourself? Did you want to kind of combine that together? I did. I mean, I love I love those kind of books. I love CJ Sansom and Andrew Taylor and the, the book that, kindled in me a desire to write a novel was Ian Pears's An Instance of the Finger Post, which is quite an old novel, but is is absolutely wonderful um, historical mystery. And so I kind of always knew I wanted to write within this genre. And did you draw on your experience within politics at all when you were writing this? Because there are definitely some corrupt politics at least going on in your book. There certainly are. I mean, I think working in politics does teach you a lot about power, the exercise of it and the protection of vested interests. Um, and slavery was a huge industry at the time, which a lot of politicians and powerful people wanted to protect, which is a, a, a plot element of the book. And I also think in politics, you see a lot of people acting and responding to things in a arena of sort of quite high intensity and sometimes quite high emotion and so all of that stuff is a gift for a novelist. Yes oh I can completely see that and so where did your interest in this particular period in Britain's history what really sparked your interest in that was it partly all the sort of powers at play? Yes I I'd always, I'd, I'd studied this period a little bit at university and I'd always been really drawn to the 18th century. And I think the thing that really piques my interest in it is that you've got on the one hand, the, the flourishing of these modern enlightenment values, but at the same time, you've still got quite a primitive and brutal society and the clash of those two value sets, I'm really drawn to that. And I think it's also the perfect era for those reasons for writing crime. Mm. It must have made quite disturbing reading, sort of researching this period, and then, of course, having to write about it. Did you find mm. that difficult? Yes, absolutely. And drawing that balance between wanting to show the full horror of it but not wanting to be gratuitous or insensitive. That was, uh, that was something I thought long and hard about and struggled with. And hopefully I've, I've drawn that line in the right place because I thought it was, it was very important. Um, I think we've done too much looking away from our slaving history and the part we played in it. And so I, I, I wanted not to shy away from that in the book. Yeah, well, you definitely didn't. And I think you're right. This is um, a time in Britain's history that does need to be discussed more, um, even though it's obviously a very uncomfortable topic. But I think you bring it to life so well and all of the issues surrounding it. 
How did you set about researching it? A lot of the action is set in Deptford, just outside of London. Would you tell me a bit about why Deptford was such an important part within the sort of slaving trade history of Britain and how you sort of researched what life was like there at the time? Because you bring it to life so brilliantly in the book. Thank you. Um, So there were three big slaving ports as well as a lot of smaller ones. There was Bristol, Liverpool and London. And Deptford, which then was about five miles away from central London, was one of several docks along the Thames that served the London end of the slave trade. And I decided to set it in London. Um, I'm actually from Bristol, so I did I did think about setting it there. But I chose London because of the proximity to the power and the vested interests in Parliament and, and elsewhere in London who were set on defending slavery. So um, I liked the idea, you know, you had Deptford just outside of London, which was, you know, quite a, it was a, a working industrial town, very much based on on the various river and sea going trades. And, you know, there was a lot of crime in Deptford. Um, and then you've got this, these kind of glittering centre of power in London, but only just down the river. And I researched it. I um, I went on, um, you know, a walking tour of historical Deptford to get a sense of the place. And not, not much of the 18th century um, history survives because it was always an industrial place. But you do get a sense of its place on the river and and elements of it remain. Um, there's a lovely street of 18th century houses, you know, so, so that the, the history of Deptford is really interesting. And I also read what I could about the history of Deptford. Um, there's lots of resources, both online and in books, and just tried to get a real sense of the place. And I mean, I've told I've told one side of, of the story of Deptford, which is its connection to the slave trade. And I've sort of very much zeroed in on that. But, you know, Deptford did have other industries too. And uh, I, I'm sure it wasn't quite as dark a place as I've portrayed it in my novel. <laughs> yes, um, it is quite a terrifying place, really, <laughs> in the book. But I love the way you do that, how you sort of have like the glittering grandeur of London, where our hero, uh, Captain Harry Corsham, is, you know, very much part of the high society and he's very well protected supposedly in his London life but when he travels to Deptford he he really does leave all of that behind and has to really fight for his life in Deptford and it's such a very very different world um, yeah you do bring it to life so brilliantly thank you so much but before we discuss the book a little bit more, would you mind just reading an extract from it? Of course. I will Thank read you. the prologue of my, of my book, Blood and Sugar. Deptford Dock, June 1781. The fog hung thick and low over the Thames. It rolled in off the water and along the quays, filling the squalid courts and dockside alleys of Lower Deptford. The local name for a frog like this was the Devil's Breath. It stank of the river's foul miasma. Now and then the fog lifted, and Nathaniel Grimshaw caught a glimpse of the guinea men anchored out on Deptford Reach, spectral lines of mast and rigging against the dawn sky. His greatcoat was heavy with damp, 
and his horsehair wig smelled of wet animal. He had been pacing in that spot for nearly half an hour. Each time he pivoted, Jago growled. The dog's black fur stood up in spikes and his eyes shone like tiny yellow fog lamps in the gloom. Nathaniel could hear the fishermen talking and he could taste their tobacco on the wind. He wanted a pipe himself, but he wasn't sure he could hold it down. He didn't know how they could stand there in such close proximity. A figure loomed out of the mist and Jago growled again, though he quietened when he recognised the stocky square frame of the Deptford magistrate Peregrine Child. A pair of bleary eyes peered at Nathaniel between the wet folds of the magistrate's long wig of office. Where is it, lad? Nathaniel led him through the fog to the wall that divided the public dock from the navy yard. The fishermen parted to let them through, each man turning to observe Child's reaction. On the quayside stood a ten-foot pole topped by a riveted iron hook where the fishermen liked to hang their largest catches. Lately it had displayed a shark that had washed up here last month. Now the shark was gone and in its place hung a man. He was naked, turning on a rope in the wind, secured under the arms with his hands tied behind him. Nathaniel didn't like blood and there was a lot of it, dried on the dead man's chest and back, smeared across his thighs, in his ears, in his nose, in his mouth. He had seen murdered men before, washed up on the mud flats or dumped in the dockside alleys where he worked as a night watchman. None of them had prepared him for this. This one was more than a corpse. He was a spectacle, like the boneless man at the Greenwich Fair. Stealing himself, he studied the man again. He was about thirty years of age, very thin, with long black hair, his eyes wide open, staring accusingly. His lips were pulled back in a frozen rictus, white skin stretched taut over angled cheekbones. Beneath the first mouth was a second, a gaping scarlet maw where the throat had been slashed. Charles stepped forward, his face inches from the body. Jesu! He was staring at a spot just above the dead man's left nipple. The lines seared into the pale hairless skin were smooth and deep. The flesh around them was puckered and blistered. From where he stood, Nathaniel could just make out the design, a crescent moon on its side surmounted by a crown. It's a slave brand, he said. Someone's marked him like a negro. I know what it is. Child stepped back, still staring at the body. Jago's growling rose in pitch, and Nathaniel made soothing noises, though his heart was in full sympathy with his dog. You recognise him, don't you, sir? It's that gentleman, Thomas Valentine. You met him, didn't you, sir? Before. I met him. Charles' abrupt tone discouraged further discussion upon this point. Nathaniel studied the magistrate surreptitiously, trying to understand his mood, trying to work out if he himself was under suspicion but Charles seemed to have forgotten that he was even there. He mouthed something beneath his breath that Nathaniel didn't catch, only a waft of sour brandy fumes on the chill dawn air. Cut him down, Charles said at last. Not a word to anyone, understand? Nathaniel dragged an old shipping crate over to the hook and clambered onto it. The dead man's eyes gazed unseeing at the still brown river. Out on the reach the guinea men creaked, and the fishermen muttered sullen riverine prayers. On every side of them, the devil's breath coiled and smoked. Oh, that was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.
And yes, it's just so atmospheric right from the start. I mean, the action really starts straight away and it's very hard to put the book down. Thank you. I was really interested that so many of the characters in the book are male. Um, There are sort of two or three important female characters in the novel as well, but most of the action is really undertaken by men. Was that a conscious decision on your part? Was that because you thought it would really only be men who would be more closely connected to the events that you were describing? It's interesting because I'm very interested in women and their and their perspective on events and their place in society at various different times. And I'm certainly rectifying this in my next book, which is basically about women at that time. But um, this book... It was really the fact that a lot of the suspects are crew of a slave ship, which Mm. obviously was all men. Um, And also the central relationship between my main character, Harry, and the victim in this story. A lot of the emotional heart of the book flowed from that relationship, and I kind of wanted to focus on that. And I tried to... um, to bring in some interesting women characters where I could, and there are certainly some in the book. But it's just the demands of the sto- of this particular story um, called for more male characters than women. Yes, well, and I mean, I love your central character, uh, Harry Corsham. He's such a likeable character. Did you find it difficult writing using the male voice? I mean, the novel is written in the first person from his perspective. Did you find that challenging, having to enter the mind of a man, particularly a man from that era? Sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you like Harry. I think he's... um he's quite an interesting character because he has a lot of um, internal conflicts going on in him. He's sort of ambition versus principle, duty versus love, propriety versus passion. And so that, that, that sort of battle within him and getting that right was, was a big challenge of the character. Um, I think writing from the, from any perspective other than your own is a challenge, whether it's a, former slave or a corrupt politician or a prostitute everybody's experience is is outside your own and I think for me the big part of writing from Harry's perspective or indeed anyone's perspective that challenge is to get inside their heads and think about how their experiences have made them see the world and trying to reflect both their sensory experience and their, you know, the, the thoughts that would be going through their mind as they observe that world that you've created. Mm. But I, I don't think writing from a man's perspective is necessarily harder than writing from anyone's perspective outside your own, although obviously you bring different parts of your experience to bear with different characters. But I do often ask my husband or my brother to... Uh, to, to read things if I'm uncertain whether it's whether they think it's convincing that a man would say or do that. Well, you certainly wrote a very convincing character. Did you use any tactics to help you to visualise your characters and really bring them to life, like to you personally as well as on the page? Or did they all just sort of appear fully formed in your head? I have to be able to picture 
the character in my mind. And often the physical description is one of the last pieces to come because I think about them an awful lot. And the character, even though I have a real sense of the character, they're only fully formed once I nail that physical description. Um, if I'm struggling, then I sometimes look at photos on online or, you know, pictures of actors or whatever to try and try and inspire me. So, so yeah, um, that that's really the only tactic I use. But I, I, you know, often I'll change a description several times over the course of writing the book. So it, it's very important to get it right for me. Mm. Well, and like I said, I mean, I really liked... Harry's character and he obviously has a great backstory too which you sort of touch on in the book and I would have actually liked to have heard a bit more about everything that made him a war hero uh, Mm -hmm. when he gets back to Britain you've mentioned that you're writing a second novel sort of within the same time period are you tempted to bring back some of the characters from this first book or will it be about completely different people I I absolutely am tempted. I didn't really want to write a sort of conventional series because for me, the the emotional journey of the central character is such a a key part. And while some writers do that incredibly well with with series, I, I preferred to move on to someone new. And so one of the characters in the book that I loved most was um, Harry's wife, Caro. Mm. Um, but the plot didn't really justify more than a handful of scenes with her. I had to scrap scenes I'd written because I loved her so much. So I've decided to make her the protagonist of my next book, um, oh, which is I'm called... so excited. <laughs> I, I loved Caro too. Oh, yes. I would have liked more of her. So yeah. that, that makes me very happy. It's called The Daughters of Night. Um, and it focuses very much on women, different women's um, experience of society at that time. So undoubtedly, Harry does feature in the story, although he features more as a as a presence in Caro's mind m- more than he actually appears in the book. Uh, he is in the book a little bit. And you're going to see the other side of the Corsham marriage from Caro's point of view rather than Harry's. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peregrine Child is also going to make a reappearance, who is the mm-hmm. magistrate in Deptford. And the devious politician, Nicholas Cavill Lawrence, will also appear in the book. So there is a number of recurring characters. Oh, well, that's really exciting. I mean, I'm I'm very excited for your next book now. That sounds brilliant. And yes, I'm really thrilled that you're fleshing out Caro a bit more because she just really scintillated, I thought, on the page. So I'm so glad that you'll be (laughs) returning to her. Fantastic. Just at the end of my interviews, I always ask my guests if they could share a cultural recommendation of something that they've been loving lately. So it could be, you know, a book or an exhibition or a play, just something that you've been enjoying. So I'm gonna, I'll, I'll mention two things. Um, so the first is I've always been a huge fan of CJ Sansom's books. And so at the moment, I'm reading his latest novel, Tombland, which is um, follows the ad- adventures of the hunchback lawyer, Shardlake. And I've just loved those books for so long. And I was so pleased that he read my book and liked it. It was like a massive honour, you know, someone you, whose books you've been reading for like 15 years. Um, 
them oh, to read your book wonderful. and like it. It was a wonderful feeling, yeah. And then the second thing is I'm a huge fan of the books of John le Carré and I really loved the recent adaptation of The Little Drummer Girl. Um, oh, yes, which is on me TV. too. Yeah, it was so good. It was just beautifully shot, amazing actors, uh, a great script, and it dealt so sensitively with a controversial subject. Um, mm. I just adored every minute of it. Oh, I so agree. I absolutely loved that too. And I haven't actually read the book before of The Little Drummer Girl and it really made me want to read it. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. But yes, you're right. I absolutely loved that on TV too. So I'll definitely put links to those in the show notes so listeners can check out your recommendations (laughs) as well. But so finally, what's next? I mean, it sounds like you already have another book in the works, which is brilliant. Um, But are also there any other upcoming events, uh, book tour, that type of thing that you're able to share? Yeah, I'm going on um, uh, a little tour of some bookshops, particularly in the Northwest and Wales and the Southwest. And on my website, which is laurashepherdrobinson.com, there are uh, there's a diary on there with all the list of those events and places and I'm also doing a number of festivals which are also on there and I'm really really looking forward to getting out on the road and telling people about blood and sugar oh fantastic and is there a timeline at all for the second book or is that st- not not sort of decided yet when that might come out all being well, um, I think uh, that should be being published in the sort of spring next year um and so it's about the daughters of night it's about women I won't say too much as it is a work in progress but it features masquerade balls uh high-class prostitutes a tortured painter a collector of classical artifacts who runs a philosophical sex club uh, and of course murder Wow. Well, you've definitely left me intrigued and (laughs) wanting more for sure. So how exciting. I can't wait for that second book too. But I'll put a link to the website and of course to Blood and Sugar in the show notes for this episode. Is there anywhere else that listeners can find you online? So I have a Facebook page and I'm also quite active on Twitter at Laura S. Robinson. Super. I'll put links to those as well in the show notes for this episode. But it's been such a pleasure chatting to you today. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Laura. And thanks so much for coming on Tea and Tattle. Thanks for inviting me. That's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thanks so much again to Laura for her brilliant interview. For all the relevant links, check out the show notes for this episode at teentattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 103. That's 103. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you shared it with a friend who you think would like it too. Or please consider leaving a review saying why you enjoy the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, as great reviews really help other people to find the show. If you'd like to get in touch, you can always drop me a line at teentattlepodcast at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram at both Miranda's Notebook and Miranda's Bookcase. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep well, be joyful and stay in touch.